right now the grid is natural gas and it's clean, but you know, 10 years ago we were building new coal plants because coal was cheap and gas was expensive. So sometimes greening the grid comes uh, just through economics and not really anything else. And I think that that kind of has hindered biodiesel and that the price just hasn't hasn't come down. But then in the meantime, natural gas and the price of renewables has just gone so far down that it, it really just kind of, I think, almost has killed it. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis, joined, as always, by eRenewable President, Mr. Mike Niemer. Mike... How in the heck are you this evening, sir? Well, other than being a little warm here with the heat index soaring in Houston, I'm doing pretty well. I'll tell you what. The storm didn't hit us, but I feel bad for the people in Louisiana where it did. No, I certainly do. Our... our, um, it, it, you know, our folks over in Beaumont, it looked like they were going to get uh, hit head on there. And then, of course, Laura veered just enough to the to the northeast to uh, spare them. I mean, yeah, there was some winds and what have you. But uh, our folks in southeast Texas uh, spared for the most part. But our friends over in uh, southwest Louisiana, not so much. But um, I guess if nothing else, you can take some solace in knowing not a huge loss of life. Uh, there was a couple of folks and the folks that stayed behind. I mean, listen, again, they, they knew what they were getting themselves into. And, and from what I read, they played pleaded with them to leave, and they just wanted to ride the thing out. And, of course, it has its perils, and uh, Mother Nature is uh, unkind uh, when she wants to be. So that's one thing you don't mess with as a hurricane uh, of the Category 4 variety. So uh, I'll tell you what you do mess with, or depending upon what you're looking for, uh, this gentleman coming up next on Episode 7 of the Green Insider Podcast, Mr. Philip Gonski, Advanced Power Systems Project Engineer for Burns engineering. Uh, he's been with the company now almost uh, going on five years, 13 years in the industry, and uh, we're excited to have Mr. Gonski on the program. Phil, how are you today? And uh, hey, you guys uh, are getting, like you said earlier, just getting a little bit of the remnants of uh, Laura. Here we are almost a week later after uh, after the hurricane passed. Yeah, Fred, we had uh, pretty much rain the entire weekend, which in some ways is kind of nice because days like Saturday were rain days, so perfect to do stuff around the house. And uh, I have a uh, six-month-old daughter, so I'm, you know, to have some time to sit at home and spend more time is all the better. Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. So uh, you've been with Burns five years, again, Advanced Power Systems Project Engineer, and so, you know, one of the things we talked about is – you know, and, and one of the common themes we've had here on the Green Insider has been the, you know, the proliferation of microgrids. That's something you're very uh, familiar with, something you've done a lot with over there on uh, the East Coast. Where are you seeing, when you started 13 years ago, how much did you know about microgrids? How, how big of a topic was it in this industry versus where you're at now 13 years later? Yeah, kind of like looking back, everything has changed uh, probably just completely from when I first started. Like I've only been in the industry since 2007. 
you know, just over 13 years. But when I first started, you know, we, I was uh, working for Sergeant Lundy in downtown Chicago and we were doing large uh, central power plants, you know, 100 megawatts up to you know, 3,600 megawatt combined cycle power plants. And in that time frame, the whole industry has changed from building these large centralized power plants to virtually no growth and people doing new large central facilities, but now more people looking at localized generation. So it's really been fascinating to see just in, in 13 years how everything has changed. And I don't think anyone really thought that we'd be going through what we are now when I first started, because just that in that time frame, solar was expensive, battery storage really didn't even exist. There was a little bit of wind power here and there, but the prices have just gone way down to now make it almost a no-brainer in certain parts of the country. Pricing well, has... Nope. Hey, Bill, when, back then, weren't everybody uh, more dependent on uh, what kind of subsidies were available uh, because the cost was so expensive before they had built something like that? Yeah, I think there were some subsidies back then. It all depends on when the investment tax credit was or wasn't renewed. And I, I believe when I first started that at that time, I think the ITC wasn't renewed or wasn't in place. So I think we did see like a dramatic decline in people looking at solar and, uh, and wind power, especially. But, you know, I, I was looking at some articles the other day, just saying how like drastically the, the cost of solar has went down. And a lot of that is is due to things like the investment tax credit, but a lot of it is also due to just cheaper manufacturing. And a lot of those, uh, the solar panel manufacturing has gone, gone overseas or, you know, there's a little bit in the U.S., but due to competition from all these projects now going on, the price has just gone way down. And then, of course, one of the things, too, though, is, is the technology's gotten better, correct? I mean, that, that's had a huge uh, impact on, on just how much more we've seen as far as, you know, more wind and more solar. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Especially on, on the solar panel side, the technology has dramatically increased. And I don't remember the exact number. It was like between 2016 and, and today, the, the, you know, the cost of solar is pretty much half. And that's a, a good combination of the, the efficiency getting better and, you know, just economies of scale because there's been a lot more projects. And a lot of it is really driven by, you know, states like you have New Jersey that has a very favorable uh, policy towards solar with their with their extract market, and that's really spurned a lot of uh, development. And so, how much has that changed what you guys do over at Burns, and maybe how has that kind of changed? How did that kind of alter your career track as far as getting more involved on the on the renewable side? Yeah, I, w I would say like five. If you look even like five years ago, when somebody it's the same as like when I first started uh, going back, and somebody said they wanted to put in an LED light bulb. You know, I would say they're, you're crazy, they're way too expensive, there's never going to be a payback. But then all of a sudden now it became the opposite of what I thought, where you're almost considered crazy if you don't put one in because they're cheap and you save so much energy. And it was really the same with solar panels where five years ago, unless you had significant subsidies or incentives from the utility, the, the price just wasn't there. Or now, like with, with the way the pricing has just gone down and down and down, we're just seeing a lot more requests, especially uh, in terms of battery storage, because 
five years ago, there was really no activity in the in the battery storage. There, there may have been a few here and there, and maybe they weren't very cost effective, but the cost of batteries has just gone way down. Even in just, you know, there's projects that looked at three years ago, <clears throat> and we look at it again, and it's just really just dramatic and how, how quickly the cost has come down. We're now almost every project we look at that involves solar and other types of microgrids, we look at battery storage. Was the battery storage more, I mean, what, what would you call the turning point for the battery store where, where we saw battery storage really start to become uh, a major factor in these prices going down? Was it just there was a necessity in the market and somebody said, okay, if we're going to, you know, because we, I know just from folks we've talked to, you know, with, the, with, with more solar, with more wind, you needed to put that power somewhere. Uh, so was it, was it the, you know, kind of a chicken or the egg type of deal where, okay, because of that, we needed more battery storage? What, what was the pivotal moment for you or, or in your estimation? where we started to see, okay, battery storage started to play a major factor in renewable energy and the accessibility of it became a lot more affordable. Yeah, I think the primary driver was, you know, probably two or three years ago when, you know, due to some technological advances and and really just kind of scale manufacturing from even overseas projects that the cost went way down. And then when you couple that with a lot of utilities have, are basically, you know, the charge people based on how much you consume, like your peak demand in a month, having a battery can really help. And especially when you look at a lot of states like New York, where you had uh, what was called the Brooklyn Queens uh, demand management program, and other like what we call non wires alternatives, where a lot of utilities, instead of just, you know, upgrading that substation or building a new power plant, a lot of utilities were mandated to look at, you know, non-wires alternatives. And, and really at that point, we saw a big movement towards things like batteries where, you know, if you're a utility and you're, you have the dilemma of you need to upgrade the substation, it's going to cost a billion, $2 million. Maybe you plop in a battery, help take care of that two hours, you know, during the day where you're above your rating and then save the rate payers some money. So a lot of that has come from the state level in terms of fostering and not really just approving whatever the utility says they need to do, but having these non-wire alternative plans, especially in New York. And, you know, there's just been so much development all because the utility commissions are looking at more creative ways to, you know, not just do the routine, let's just throw another you know, one billion or two billion dollars to solve a problem that only exists for two or three hours. And so that's where. They, and so, so really, these. I mean, they're just cost effective in so many ways. It was kind of discovered that okay, it, there's more. There's more ways for this this battery storage to be used, and there's so many other issues or things that we can you know uh, um, remedy uh, as opposed to it just being a strictly solar wind get type gadget. Oh, definitely too. And the other like big thing that is spurring development. And, and really foster development for solar and especially battery storage has been advancing and uh, like even metering. Because you look at, you know, 10 years ago, all the utilities were measuring was, you know, just how many KWHs are you consuming? And then what is your peak in that month? Where now you have just tons of data to know exactly when that peak occurs. So instead of always planning for the absolute worst case event, which is what utilities have historically done. Now they're able to look at 
all the data they have from everyone's meter in their house or in, you know, all these different commercial industrial customers and say, instead of building this billion dollar power plant, let's just spend a little bit of money because we're only, there's only two, three hours of the day where we have issues. So it's really also been huge advances in metering and analysis. And, uh, you know, like a lot of my work has been at the, the Philly Navy Yard here and we, we put in smart meters about, you know, roughly at that same time frame, like five years ago. And now when a, when a customer comes and say they want to put in a commercial building or a pharmaceutical company, we're able to go through all the load profiles and kind of graph out like what, what, what exactly the impact is going to be. Because otherwise, you know, six years ago, all you do is add up the worst case scenarios and then you come up with a massively oversized system that isn't cost effective or now you can create a really customized solution using solar and <clears throat> generators and and uh, especially storage and that's all and that's all come about uh, in a big in a large way is just from smart metering and the fact that now you just have that much more data that you can process and that much more data you can use to help build a more efficient system Oh yeah. A, a good example is, you know, one of the substations at the Philadelphia Navy Yard is, you know, there was like a, a period of time of just a few hundred hours a year where it was starting to reach its peak. But you, you put in a battery, you know, the alternative is you run more wires from the utility. That's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to be very disruptive. And, you know, now that we had all this, this smart metering, you can analyze it, put in a generator, put in a battery. And, you know, now instead of routing wires four or five miles to the substation, you just you put a battery in locally at the source and you solve the problem or you at least defer the need to upgrade that substation. And so you're really seeing a lot of utilities go from planning for peak first and like, you know, analyzing it and really kind of looking at 15 minute interval data to see when are different assets required. How much has it surprised you? Uh, maybe some of the overbuilding or some of the overusage where it really wasn't necessary if there was just, if folks would have just taken a step back, looked at the data that was available, and then could have reassessed then to where, you know, maybe they went and built some, like you mentioned, you know, you're, you're spending however much money on these uh, systems that maybe you didn't need in the first place, or you could have just gone about being a little more efficient with it. I think the hard part is always, uh, especially, you know, as an, as an engineer, like people always tend to be more conservative and over plan. But, you know, in my career, I've seen people that, you know, say they need five megawatts of power, but then when you start to look at what they're actually using, they're using less than four or 500 kilowatts. So you see a lot of applications where, you know, people are over planning and overestimating, but then like once you get kind of a load profile, you can graph out, exactly what they're using. And then when the next tenant or customer comes in, that's a similar facility, you can use that data and then say, okay, well, you know, the last person was a hundred thousand square feet. This person's, uh, you know, 6,000 square feet. So we can scale the data and this is what we need to plan for. Interesting. Uh, Bill, uh, most of those, uh, the, your example of four or 500,000 KW versus five megawatts, are most of your clients doing energy master plans first before they even get to you? Or is that you actually do those for them prior to you actually starting construction or building something out? I would say it really depends on the uh, kind of on the client's position. Like a lot of larger customers, they do energy planning. So 
you know, the Philly Navy Yard did an energy master plan and they've actually held up pretty well if you go back and look at it and that a lot of what they're doing now is really kind of following that plan. So we see the larger customers doing the plans like universities or kind of large industrial customers. But a lot of organizations, you know, just don't have the capital or the time to really invest into, you know, paying somebody really to go look all through and come up with a comprehensive plan. So it really depends on the the customer and, you know, really what their financial capacity is to really look at it. A lot of people just tend to make decisions based on the now and not really the future. When you take a look at these master plans, you mentioned uh, you know some of the things you run into is, guy, is, is companies or folks over planning. Is that the biggest issue uh, or the biggest uh, error? And maybe error is the wrong word, but the biggest thing you see as, as an issue with the master plans when the, the companies presented themselves is they're just overestimating or over planning too much. I think that's that's certainly an issue, and I think that always you know no one ever you know got punished or chastised for over planning. I think just same thing as when people try to do a cost estimate and try to price up a project. Usually you get in trouble when you uh, underestimate and the project comes in way over over budget than you had told somebody. But it's pretty rare where, you know, a client is uh, displeased that you said a project would cost more than it did. So I think naturally engineers are conservative and a lot of people would prefer to be on the higher side just because it's always easier to use less than it is to use more. No, that certainly makes sense. So microgrids, again, is something that you've uh, you, you've taken a, a larger approach to or, sweet, or definitely a larger part of your work, uh, your workflow than it was when you first started. We know that in the West Coast, they're starting to see more and more microgrids. However, it's the utilities that are, contri- that are, that are looking to control them, especially in California. Uh, Sammy Reefer let us know about that uh, on our last podcast. Where, who, who, where's the control at uh, in, in your neck of the woods in the Northeast? Who, who, who's controlling the microgrids there? It seems like, at least on the East Coast, and it's probably very similar to the West Coast. There was an initial period where a lot of utilities, I think, were trying to get into that sector, which seemed kind of like a natural progression. But it seems like here, at least, a lot of these are still what I would call like a single customer microgrid. And that that may be the case, too, on the West Coast as well, because you have a lot of regulatory issues in terms of, you know, having four or five different customers all sharing an asset. And here there's been a lot of kind of studies between the New York Prize and the New Jersey Town Center Program to look at, you know, business models to have different commercial industrial tenants kind of pull the resources together in a microgrid. But still here, it's a lot easier for, you know, universities, airports, you know, people like the Philly Navy Yard that are really one large entity that has all the other customers kind of under their shield behind the meter but it's really still really on the single kind of the single user microgrid is really the model that's more prevalent today you know uh uh, burns do you have uh you guys worked on many microgrids in actually regulated states for that single user being a university or large cni customer actually had one you put one in for them in in a regulated state We've been talking a lot about deregulated states. Do you ever get much action in regulated areas? 
Uh, I don't, I don't think so. It's, it's hard to really recall like which ones are regulated or non-regulated. I know, I think Pennsylvania is a deregulated state. It is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we are doing projects in, in states like New Mexico and, and Texas. I don't know if those are, uh, well, New Mexico is regulated. Texas, of course, with ERCOT is deregulated. So, okay. And even in those, like if it doesn't work kind of from a regulatory aspect, like a lot of these are also driven by, you know, like we are working with univer- like a university in New Mexico that is uh, putting in or adding really to their existing microgrid. And that's really being driven by the fact that the utility in that area has a very large demand charge that they assess <clears throat> and they have existing solar. So we're looking at putting in battery storage to kind of extend the impact of the solar to help wipe out more of those uh, higher demand charges. That makes sense. But still, for the most part, it's really, you know, one customer who has, you know, for lack of a better word, like one one interface with the utility. Gotcha. Okay. Um, one of the things you took, we, we were kind of uh, kicking around before the show started, and, and uh, one of the things you mentioned is uh, one of the buzzwords or one of the things that you and your colleagues are hearing a lot about is uh, carbon neutrality. Is that uh yeah, carbon neutrality. Uh, tell the folks a little bit about it at home. I mean, because, again, that's one of those terms that, you know, you're starting to hear a little bit more about. I mean, we know about uh, carbon footprint. We know about climate change. We know about global warming. Uh, refresh the folks at home a little bit about what uh, what carbon neutrality is and what it means. Yeah, so really the whole point behind carbon neutrality is, is kind of when you do an accounting inventory of your use of carbon versus things like planting trees, they're really trying to do this accounting and say that they're not really adding any carbon to uh, the atmosphere. And, you know, that could be uh, what we're seeing a lot of now is people moving towards like a good example is transit transit agencies are looking to be carbon neutral by going towards uh, electric buses or fostering electric vehicle charging. We're seeing a lot of universities as well that are, uh, shutting down like, you know, uh, carbon burning uh, boiler plants and putting in electric boilers or electric hot water heaters. So there's really been a huge trend toward electrification of just trying to reduce any on-site burning of, uh, you know, carbon sources like natural gas or coal or propane. The issue, and, and I, it's not the issue, but you know, the old adage, uh, you know, too much of a good thing is, again, it's wonderful for the environment uh, when you take out the carbon aspect of it and when everything becomes more electrified. The flip side to that, though, and maybe that's that's not talked about enough, and that's why we bring guys like Mr. Philip Gonski on here to discuss this, is that, you know, let's call it what it is. I mean, the grid's old. The grid's archaic. I mean, we've had several folks tell us that, and it's something that, you know, why we're seeing more microgrids. Um do you at all do you worry that as we try to go more electrified that we're going to put that much more taxation on an already taxed uh grid yeah that that's a great point fred and i think a lot of it comes down to like where is the power coming from the grid and i think a lot of this movement towards carbon neutrality makes a lot of sense if a customer is installing things like solar storage or even like a bridge fuel, like natural gas uh, peaker generators to really kind of help offset the need to just bring in more wires from the power grid. The downside is, is 
if everyone starts to go electric, then you're going to have, you're going to have some serious problems with the grid. And then kind of one of my fears is that you're almost going to go back to what it was when I first started of large centralized power stations. And the more and more that people, you know, don't offset it locally, you're going to need more transmission lines that involve some pretty heavy environmental impact studies and a lot of right away attainment. So it's a great idea, I think, to go carbon neutral if you can offset it with local clean generation. It, it all depends too on what the generation is, you know, on the grid. If you're going all electric in your college, but you're just getting your power from a coal plant, that's really not doing a whole lot because the if you had like a local generator, a local boiler, a local CHP plant, those are producing less carbon than a centralized power station. And yeah, the, you know, the grid is for large, you know, large parts of it, very old and in need of investment. And the more and more that people add to it, the more you're gonna to need to expand it and do controls. And so I think it's a great idea as long as it can be offset by local clean energy which we really have seen, like most of the requests we've had from agencies and universities to go carbon neutral has, you know, gone hand in hand with looking at solar and, and battery storage and even local natural gas generators just to kind of help out if there's a, a crisis and they need power quickly. So you're, so again, you're encouraged by the idea that we're going to go electric, but at the same time, listen, let's, let's not abandon what we're doing on the on the back end of this as well because that's going to need some attention too yeah i I definitely think it has to be carefully planned because if you know if someone goes carbon neutral on their facility or their airport or university but you know you add so much more power to the grid and the end result is that the utility builds a new gas plant (laughs) i don't know if if that's really the the intent it's really about who the net effect may not have been what we were hoping it would be no and it's like you may be carbon neutral as your facility, but you know the downstream it's not. So wait, luckily, where, okay, sorry. If you look at the numbers, like luckily today, like a lot of the due to the price of natural gas, the grid itself has you know gradually gotten cleaner and cleaner as gas has gone way down in price, and coal has went up to almost to the point where you don't really see it anymore. So luckily, the grid has gotten cleaner. And but that you know those situations can change pretty easily. You talk about the grid getting cleaner, and obviously that's a big part of what we do here at uh, E Renewable. One of the big uh, goals and one of the big objectives for the folks here in Texas, one of our groups we do work with, Clean Techs, fifty um, percent uh, renewable energy usage in the state by twenty by twenty thirty. Uh, you've got a lot of companies that want to be you know all green by twenty fifty. Where are you at on per uh, you know and, and and I know percentages are fun to throw out there because it gives everybody a nice nice number to get at you know to to kind of draw after and, and and you know identify everybody by. Where are you at as far as where we are as a country when it comes to our renewable energy, the percentage that we're using, and the trajectory that we're on to where. We're. Ne- I don't know in our lifetime if we're going to be 100 percent green energy. I just don't know if it, if it's feasible. But I know we certainly can do a lot more than what we're than where we're at right now. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to project, but I think it's just going to get cleaner and cleaner, especially as you see, you know, the prices just continue to go down. 
I think that there's still going to be a, <clears throat> a need for natural gas in the near future, just because it's a good solid base load power where solar and storage, you know, are, are somewhat variable or don't last enough, depending on what the usage is. You'll still always see a need, I think, for natural gas. And a lot of the projects we look at, you, know, you do have things like solar and storage, but then usually we see customers putting in natural gas assets more as like a kind of kind of a safety backup because if you have an outage and that you know it's not sunny out you're not going to have any solar panels working and your batteries may only last two to four hours so we see a lot of people coupling their microgrids with uh either somewhat cleaner tier four diesels or natural gas generators and then the hope is you know that you can offset the usage of that natural gas generator by using your battery and your solar and you're no stranger to biodiesel. You've done your fair share of work uh, with biodiesel. Are you surprised? I, I remember biodiesel, you know, being from Kansas and, and being a Jayhawk. I mean, that was a big deal in the mid-2000s. Are you surprised biodiesel hasn't taken off more uh, from a mainstream perspective? I think not not entirely. And I, I was like, it's pretty similar. Like, uh, you know, University of Illinois is kind of in the middle of a cornfield. So I, I know the state of Illinois was a big uh, proponent of uh, people putting in uh, biodiesel and kind of they would offset the, you know, they would subsidize it. But unfortunately, the cost just hasn't come down. Right. And I think really anything is a matter of, of cost. I think right now the grid is natural gas and it's clean. But, you know, 10 years ago, we were building new coal plants because coal was cheap and gas was expensive. So sometimes greening the grid comes uh, just through economics and not really anything else. And I think that that kind of has hindered biodiesel and that the price just hasn't, hasn't come down. But then in the meantime, natural gas due to a lot of the, the shale operations <clears throat> in our country and the price of renewables has just gone so far down that it, it really just kind of, I think almost has killed it. But you do see a lot of states that have, you know, good use for, for biodiesel or kind of bio products where if you have a wastewater plant, you still see people putting in uh, anaerobic digestion and generating electricity or, you know, people that have like a chicken farm doing waste to energy. A lot of those projects, you know, still do rely on, on state incentives, but just price really is, is the king and whatever the market dictates is where where it goes. And right now it's, uh, natural gas and renewables. You also mentioned earlier too, and, and, uh, just what you've seen with solar, the prices continue to go down. Um, what does that mean long-term and where, where is that going to put solar as far as just a, maybe from a, both from a commercial and from a residential standpoint, are you going to start seeing, you know, maybe folks where it was considered, all right, we're looking at a forty fifty thousand dollar addition if we're going to put it solar to where now maybe folks, you know, middle of the rung are going to be able to start, uh, affording, being able to afford adding uh, solar energy to their homes. Yeah, I think you're, you're only going to see more and more of it, but it, it does largely depend on the state. I know in Arizona is a good case where, you know, they had, uh, they have a lot of sun there, obviously. So a lot of residential customers were putting in solar panels and, you know, leasing the roof for people to put solar in. But then they just got so much that they ended up removing uh, some of the net metering policies in Arizona, which has hindered solar growth there. 
So that that's really, and even in Hawaii, I know where you would imagine it would be a, a perfect place for solar. They got to a point where the utility had to push back and kind of say, "Hey, we got we got too much solar on the grid," and having you know too much isn't always isn't always a good thing. And in a lot of those utilities, like that, does cause some problems where you have large rises in voltage or instability, where you can go from a, a very hot noontime production of solar and then four hours later it's you know zero or you have like a weather pattern like what you had over in, in texas where all of a sudden uh you know a storm comes through they kind of shut off all the wind turbines and there's no solar panels that are getting any power and all of a sudden the grid has to deal with losing like four gigawatts of power in a few minutes and then you got to turn on your uh less efficient uh coal plants and gas plants you know phil as you've been talking um when you have the situation where people have overbuilt solar like you described in arizona and everything is that part of what burns engineering do you guys participate in helping them make that right and writing that ship so they can get back to where it's more efficient tell us about burns and what you guys do throughout the country and with your marketing yeah, so like we don't uh, get too much involved on the policy aspect. We do uh, do some work for the Department of Energy on kind of how to model microgrids and some of the economic cases of microgrids. One of the areas that we do help customers is, you know, if you take a state like that, uh, we work with a large uh, commercial uh, organization that's uh, a global company that wanted to put some stores in in states like Arizona and Nevada that didn't have net metering policies anymore, but they still had their own sustainability goals. So we helped them look at the case of, of putting in batteries, because if you can't you know, export that solar power, you can sure as heck store it and then use it at night. So in, in one aspect that that is kind of like had a pivot towards more storage, just because you can't export power now and offset your bill. Well, that's interesting. So real quick, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll start wrapping this up and get you out of here with a couple things before uh, before we conclude. So is that going to be the dance then for the next few years, or you know, for the the immediate future? Is balancing that all right? Renewable energy when we're using it for the grid, and then using natural gas for when your wind is down, for when your solar's down. Is that going to be kind of the the tango we're going to do? Uh, for you know the foreseeable future and then obviously battery storage is going to have its part in that but i mean is that kind of the four-headed monster we're going to be dealing with uh for the foreseeable future yeah i think for at least the next few years i see it you know kind of as that model where you have renewables and then you know fossil fuel like natural gas which is for all things considered relatively clean I think that's going to be the current model but there's always you know something that that pops up like you know when i first started we were in my first job, we were, we were building coal plants because that was cheap. And I don't think anyone foresaw what happened with some of like the shale operations now going that have turned the U.S. into one of the largest uh, oil producers in the world. I don't know if really anyone saw that that pivot coming, but now yeah, that's kind of the market that it is, is where everything is uh, moving towards cleaner natural gas and away from coal. So I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what goes on because there's always technology changing. There's always policies that are being modified. You know, a good example is the 
you know, the 30% investment tax credit for solar and, you know, 10% for combined heat and power, I, I think is up for renewal in, in 2021. So then it really starts to get into who is in office and what policies do they support? And that's really public policy drives a lot of these projects. And uh, mostly that's been at the state level, but when you have the federal government giving you a 30% you know, tax break really on your solar panel investment or your, your batteries that are charged by solar also qualify for that tax credit. That really also helps uh, kind of foster development of those assets. No, it certainly does. All right, so what are some of the things, uh, I know, like I said, you're, you're a busy guy over there at Burns and you're located in their, uh, their headquarters, correct, over there in Philly? Yeah, that's correct. In uh, Philadelphia, we have uh, probably about 200 uh, engineers in Philly and then uh, branch offices in New York, D.C. and, you know, St. Louis and uh, just started up a uh, L.A. office, too, because that's obviously the hot energy market nowadays. And trying to get into that. Um, What what are some of the projects that are on your docket right now for 2020? And uh, what are some of the things you're looking forward to or ahead to in 2021? Uh, really seeing a lot of uh, kind of what we touched on before, like the natural gas and renewable projects. I have, you know, a project in Texas that is battery storage and natural gas generators, uh, you know, project in New Mexico that is adding batteries to an existing uh, solar panel asset and then also putting in natural gas generation, uh, doing a very large uh battery storage project as well to kind of defer having to pay a lot of money to bring in more wires from the utility. And uh, definitely seeing a movement uh, on a lot of public agencies, transit agencies, for example, universities to go to all electric type configurations. So it seems at least for the next year, I think we're going to see a lot more of those projects as prices have come down and you know, really, especially on the uh, kind of the tax side, as long as you you still have about another year, year and a half to take advantage of the depreciation and uh, tax benefits of renewables so for at least the next year, I think there'll be a lot of activity and people are just trying to get projects done before that deadline. Makes perfect sense. And uh, listen, obviously, you're, you're, you're leading the charge here uh, on the electric front, which we certainly appreciate. And uh, again, with the renewable sector, with the way it is, I mean, whether it's electric, uh, solar or wind, um, it's just it's an exciting time to be in the renewable energy space, is it not? Yeah, I think it really is exciting. And I would never have imagined that the market would be where it is now, I think, when I first started in the uh, in the power sector. Yeah, we're building large plants and that had worked for hundred something years since Thomas Edison. And now we're, you know, in some ways we're going back to how it was when the grid was first built. It was local power plants kind of near the loads. And then we went to this large, you know, giant power plant case. And now we're, we seem to be going back to how it was before of building generation more locally. But it's, it's certainly been fascinating to see how the market has changed. Well, as I was once told in college, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Philip Gonski, Advanced Power Systems Project Engineer for the Burns Group in Philadelphia. Phil, we appreciate your time today. And uh, listen, 
you're doing God's work over there in Philadelphia. We'll get you on again next year. We can uh, get you up to date on or just get an update on where you're at uh, with your projects. And I'm sure, uh, as we all know, there's at least two or three advancements just waiting in the wings that I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about between now and the next time we meet up next year. Yeah, exciting times. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Mike and Fred. And uh, thanks for having this podcast and helping to foster this uh, industry. It's certainly a great time to be in it. Our pleasure, and thank you for your time, and have yourself a nice evening. Thank you. Once again, thank you to Mr. Philip Gonski, uh, Advanced Power Systems Project Engineer over at the Burns Group in Philadelphia. Mike, I tell you what, um, he, 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 you know, we, we're, we're starting to get a pretty good hold and a good handle on, on microgrids here uh, on the Green Insider. We've had several folks talk about it, but, you know, whether it's been the carbon neutrality uh, issue that he brought up, but more importantly, just kind of, yes, everybody wants to get electrified, and it makes perfect sense, but... Not to say there's a downside to it, but there's that back end that you have to concern yourself with, and Phil talked a little bit about that today. Yes, they've got to make sure the structures are in place to be able to handle that much green. And the way people are starting to build these out, there's almost too much green in certain spots, and that's causing another set of issues. So operationally, they've got to get their act together in a lot of these different ISOs, and uh, it'll come around, but uh, thanks to firms like Burns can help people straighten things out. Uh, I have full confidence that it'll all work out at the end because everybody has the same goal. And ultimately, everybody's wanting to be 100% green. Uh, if you're a municipality or university or a state-run agency, that's what they're shooting for. But you got to have a, a grid that can handle it. You certainly do. And as uh, Phil pointed out, too, you got to have the finances to do it. It's got to make economic sense. And that's something yep. that, um, you know, for as benevolent and for as, as optimistic as everybody wants to be uh, about green energy, and we certainly are here on the Green Insider, there is definitely a financial aspect of it, too, that always has to be taken into consideration. Phil uh, certainly highlighted that today. So uh, the Green Insider, powered by eRenewal. Make sure you catch it on Apple iTunes. Make sure you catch it on Google Play. Give us a five-star rating. Why? Because I promise you, you learned something from this episode episode that you didn't know before you started listening seven episodes into uh, the green insider and i uh, thank you to all the guests and again give us a five-star rating you'll be glad you did uh, we continue to try to put out as much information and as much quality information with some of the best guests you're going to find in the renewable space and that's a credit to mr mike myself and the entire e-renewable team going out there and trying to get the best guests for you to listen to so uh, make sure you go to the website erenew.net that's erenew.net of course available 24-7 365 available by phone as well if you'd like to get a hold of Mike 1-866-ERENEW-1 1-866-ERENEW-1 we're also available on uh, Twitter as well at ERENEW2020 so uh, again thank you so much to Phil Gonski Mike great show from you as always and everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable, where we make going green a whole heck of a lot easier. Thanks for listening. Have a great night. God bless. When